episode Loaded nine. Oh. Does he sit second, man? No, I don't I think he does. I think Kevin Keegan probably sits second. Oh, my God, what a <laughs> scandal. Austin Eckler versus the cards. Go and fuck yeah. the lot of you. <laughs> Austin Eckler. He's making me like I'm some sort of cameo. Like, I'm coming in and go, and out the bag, England to win. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Loaded Sport. Another week in sport has come and gone. And despite the fact that a lot of sports have a bit of downtime this time of year, there is still plenty to talk about this week. Joining me is a man that uh, helped me get through episode 55 by hook or crook. It was a, a bit of a struggle with the lack of content. But Aggie, welcome back for episode 56. We've got a little bit more to talk about tonight. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm all right, mate. I was just saying to Sam before before you joined, before we started recording, it always gives me a little like bit of a blood pump when I sit down and get set up because it's like a little checkpoint in the week of like, oh, it's peep behind the curtain, as Kent would say. It's Thursday evening, it's nearly the weekend. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, always good when uh, we hit record on this. But how's your week been? It's been good, thank you. Yeah, the weather's still doing me in with a bit of hay fever, but otherwise it's just one of them things, isn't it? I'm close to the weekend and I've got a four-day weekend, so I'm I'm up for it. You can't oh, tell in my voice, but I'm actually excited. Yeah, absolutely, mate. No, we, we can tell, to be fair, or I can anyway, but we'll get stuck into the plans for that four-day weekend. Uh, a man that wasn't with us last week, and I think part of it was due to the fact that we had to record much earlier in the week due to uh, plans all round, but he is back this week to bring his to bring us his views on the latest goings-on in sport. Sam, how are you doing, mate? Welcome back. Yeah, good to be back, boys. Good to be back. Thank you very much, both of you. Holding down the fort in my man in the Kemp is absent. Obviously, Kemp is on holiday and he should be back for the next week. Uh, but yeah, um, it was quite nice to have a little week off, I must admit. But here we go, back at it, refreshed and uh, and ready to go. That's absolutely bollocks. You know, I'm absolutely shattered today. So <laughs> yeah. let's, just, uh, let's just crack on. We'll get through it. But uh, yeah, I'm tired as well. I've poured myself a little bit. It's a star of Pram and Glass, but it is Australia, uh, is the beer of choice tonight. Just to, uh, as we always say, take the edge off. And get us through this next hour, hour and a half or so, and, and lighten up and enjoy it as the as the episode goes on. But uh, yeah, first of all, I suppose that the best place to start, probably the main headline from the last week, is it is now official. Manchester United have a new number seven, a storied number, historic number across football, but in particular with Manchester United, with some of the greats over the years that have worn that number. It is now to be held by Mason Mount. Now that transfer is one that has been discussed. In many episodes over the last few weeks, the latest, latest goings on, Chelsea's expectations, Manchester United's expectations, it didn't look like it was going to happen. I think me and you, Aggie, spoke one week about potential backups and, and what who might be next on the list should that deal fall through. But it is now done and dusted. Um, so, Sam, I'll come to you. you. You've had a lot to say on the Mount discussions over the last few weeks. I suppose you having more of a connection with him than most, with him having a bit of time at Derby and playing very well. But now it's official. Now you've got a bit of an idea of where he might line up or how he might line up in that Manchester United team. What difference is Mason Mount going to make and what part is he going to play in the in the rehaul and the rebuild that Eric Ten Hag is planning? Yeah, well, you know what? Um, I, we've, I think we've all to and fro on this one. We've all agreed unanimously, unanimously that it's a lot of money for a squad rotation player. However, now it's done and it's over the line, I can kind of sit back and appreciate it a bit more. And I think... Um, I think it's a good signing. I really do. And I, I, I always hark back to that FA Cup final against City where United just didn't have anything at all in, throughout the entirety of the game for them. They tried making changes. McTominay and Fred come on and about Vegos come on and there was just there was no real quality off the bench. So he's definitely going to be something like that. Is that 
I don't think now that I've, I've actually had time to think about it, I don't think he is going to be a, a, a possibly a squad player, even a bench player. I think he's probably going to start, actually. Um, Ten Hag seemed very, very high on him um, and, and vice versa. Apparently, Ten Hag was the reason why Mount went over to United. Um, he, had a, he had a couple of offers from uh, from elsewhere. I think Liverpool showed a bit of interest as well at some point, but apparently only it's, once he'd met Ten Hag, that was it. He only had eyes for him. So, yeah, I think, um, I think Ten, Ten Hag will get 100% out of him. It's We've seen him in an England shape before and I think me and you, Dawson, have, have defended him more than most for England up to a certain extent because he just wakes his bollocks off. And Southgate, at one point, he wanted to play that high press and he, he wanted to you know, lead from the front and he was always the first name on the team sheet when he was playing that system. And I think it's the exact same sort of system Ten Hag is going to want to play. He's going to want to play aggressive football, the old Liverpool and Dortmund style, what Klopp's brought in, you know, high tempo, gig and press. Um, and he's and he's a perfect player for that. He's got bags of energy. He'll run run all day, and he's got that quality as well. So I, I now that I've sat and thought about it, I do think he'll start for United, and I do think if he's going to start, it's a going rate sixty million for a starting Premier League uh, player. Um, there's been a lot of made of it of his of his actual uh, wage that he's going to be on. It's two hundred and fifty grand with with bonuses and all that. So again. It's what Ten Hag set out to do. He said he's going to bring out that cap. No one's going to come and sign in a deal. You know, you're not going to have your 500 grand a week anymore. You're Alexis Sanchez and the A has been forced to take a pay cut. So I think oh, for the good of it, we've seen the back of them days at United and, and his, his leading from example is, is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Uh, yeah, so I, I've actually changed my mind slightly and I think it'll be it'll come good for United and I think he'll start probably more games than he won't. Yeah, I, I'm. I completely agree with everything you've just said there. At first, when the rumours were coming out, I was thinking, is that the marquee signing that you, you'd be hoping for as a Manchester United fan with the positive steps that took place last year? No. Was it going to be a bit part part player? But yeah, everything that you've just said there is kind of my mindset throughout the whole thing. At first, I was like, oh, it's 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 a good signing, but for me, it's sort of the third fourth signing into the summer. Not the all the focus is on that player. Um, I do think, yeah, he's going to be an integral part of the midfield three with with Bruno and Casemiro. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. The the traditional sort of number eight role that Ten Hag wants to play, a very high press, pushing the, the back line back, you know, not letting them sort of advance and control the game. And yeah, you're absolutely right there with Mason Mount's strengths. It definitely plays into that. So um, yeah, I'm actually a lot happier now, whether that comes across like I'm just saying it because he's now signed, but I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm definitely happier now at this point. Now I've had time to think about it. Now I've I've read a few articles about you know his strengths and what Ten Hag wants from him, things like that. It's definitely installed a lot of confidence in me than when it was very first announced. But I do think a lot of that was like that was the main focus. You know, we, we went from like potentially Harry Kane to all of a sudden it's Mason Mount and and not really sort of main position that you need. So no, I, I'm happy, but um, we'll we'll see what happens. And I, yeah, I do agree. I think he'll be a, a better Manchester United player than he than he was a Chelsea player. Uh, based on the system that he'll be playing in and the you know the sort of man management that Ten Hag offers as well and that bit of stability because he's not had that over the last couple of years at Chelsea let's be honest um so yeah got some. what what are your thoughts Aggie you're you're very big when it comes to international football I, I know being a Chesterfield fan not not a huge amount of focus on the Premier League but with Mason Mount strengths what you've seen from him um at for, for England and what he does do you think that that plays into the style of play that Manchester United will want to do moving forward? Or is he just someone that's there to fill out a bit of depth, which they have lacked in the bigger names, as Sam mentioned earlier? 
I felt that he was a player that was going to move in as a bit more of a depth option, like Sam's pointed out plenty of times, again, that cup final against Man City and just who they had on the bench. And I think someone like Mason Mount, even if he does start, it allows one of the starters that they had from the cup final last season to be on the bench and another option. What I do hope, and I'm going to oppose both of what you two said in the fact that he's been playing for England and how he's been playing for England. And I'm hoping that settling into this United squad, working under Ten Hag, we'll, we'll see a different Mason Mount and hopefully a Mason Mount that will settle into an England squad and fight for a place and, and perform better than what he has been doing. Because whenever I see him on the England lineup, I'm often sat there thinking, why is he even starting? We've got Phil Foden on the bench, you know, Jack Grealish, these sort of players that could be much more of an impact. And Mason Mount, while he's been under Chelsea, haven't, hasn't really impressed that much, in my opinion, to, to get himself onto the international stage. So I'm hoping maybe a bit more game time into a settled Manchester United squad is going to help him from an international standpoint. I think 60 million, yeah, I says I'd never go any higher than that for Mason Mount anyway. So 60 million, I'm, I'm pretty okay with. I do think that United still need to look for a striker. I know this talks about where they're looking next after Mason Mount, but their priority has to be a striker. They've got nobody that's going to get them goals on a regular basis. Yes, they've got Marcus Rashford, and I guess we've seen glimpses of him over the sort of, like, you know, just after the World Cup period, and we got to see what he was doing at the World Cup. But they need a striker that's going to be much more prolific for them if they're going to compete much stronger over the season with Arsenal and Manchester City next season. And I think that's yeah, where definitely. they're going next. The, the, the big name when it comes to the striker, the one that they're mainly linked with at the moment is Rasmus Hullion from Atalanta. Um, for me, seems like a very good prospect, someone that in two, three, four years' time will be you know, a fully-fledged um, striker, but I'm not really sure where he stands in terms of if he comes in this summer, what's he going to offer next season? Um, so it's hard to say. Again, it's not really that marquee signing, but it's definitely one for the future. Um, another one as well, Sam, you mentioned when you talk about the salary cap, you mentioned De Gea. He is now officially with the turn of the month uh, out of contract uh, with Manchester United. There are apparently still talks behind scenes. Um, one of the rumours or reports that I saw was that um, De Gea had agreed to a, a pay cut uh, but then Manchester United didn't sign the contract, whether that was through, you know, they, they wanted to use that as an opportunity to move on, find the style of player that would fit into the system, passing out from the back and all that kind of stuff that Ten Hag wants to play. Uh, the latest name and another big, sort of the main name that I'm seeing rumoured when it comes to Manchester United signings is Onana from Inter Milan. Uh, I believe he was with uh, Ten Hag at Ajax. So got a lot of obviously knowledge of what he can do and you know, clearly believes in his abilities. Latest I saw was United were looking at around £40 million bid with £5 million in add-ons um, and Inter Milan were wanting closer to 50 for that upfront fee. So uh, you would assume now talks have started that uh, eventually it will get done, but it just seems like that typical United thing when other teams around them are making signings, it's taken them a month to make a signing, then they're moving on to the next one and that's dragged out and then come towards the end of the transfer window, there's a couple of panic buyers. So, you know, whether that's the Glazers, whether that's the sort of board level that that, that causes that, you know, I really hope Ten Hag is, is given the ability to sort of very quickly get together the squad that he wants. So he's got plenty of time to get them ready for, for the next season. But but we'll see. Hopefully this time next week we'll have a bit of an update on where we're at with that. <clears throat> yeah, just on your point of uh, De Gea there, um, I, I, I do feel slightly for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know he's dropped a fair amount of clangers, but he's also how many points did he say United over these last five, five or six years? He seems to be almost bending over backwards to join, the, to keep with the team. He's, he's, he's obviously took the pay cut that they've asked of him, which is all, almost unheard of in this day and age. 
again, I'm under no illusion. I know he's on a shit ton of money and it's not going to affect him all that much, but he's still done it. It's still an ego thing and he's still took his ego yeah. out of it and taken the pay cut. And one thing United have done, I mean, this is all speculation. This is rumour. This is not 100% and Sky Falls haven't reported it, but there's a strong rumour that apparently United, as you've rightfully said, his contract is now up this month, <clears throat> as in it's gone. He's, he's out of contract as a free agent. Apparently United have asked him not to sign or speak to another well, I don't know if they've asked him not to speak to another club. They've asked him not to sign for another club until they can get their business done in regards to a goalkeeper, which I think is if it's true, I think that's shocking on their their part because one, why wouldn't you be looking for a new club if, if United have, you know, allowed the contract to run out, he's already agreed to a, a pay cut and he, and they're still dragging the feet with it. They're still actively searching for a replacement for you. I think if it's true, I think it's a bit shit on United that they've um, that they've actually asked that's that of him. I completely agree. I've not seen that personally, but yeah, if there's any element of truth to that, that is shocking. How can you expect a player to just sit there and, and wait? It's kind of that it's the office come along after thought, really, isn't it? It's yeah. like, oh, yeah. give us six weeks try and sign someone, and if we don't, we'll we'll You'll sign do. the contract for you. Yeah, yeah. so. But yeah, he's been player of the year many years in the year since Fergie left. He's been one of the sort of positives out of amongst a lot of negatives but yeah you're right I, th- I don't know if you saw it someone dropped like an hour and a half long they basically put a film together on Twitter of, of his mistakes over the years oh, his, his mistakes, his mistakes. Oh. yeah 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 oh. um, <laughs> so it was a bit brutal obviously people saying like as, as if someone's you know it's not just going to have taken an hour and a half to put together no. but yeah so it, done that. yeah seeing it in a chunk you know it's not great but yeah I think that's you're harsh, right though. Into... I think you always get that with goalkeepers, don't you? As a midfielder, you make an error, you've got your defence to fall back on, your defenders have got your keeper. Your keeper makes an error. More often than not, it's going to be a goal. And I'm sure most goalkeepers, you can find a good video, a long video footage of all their errors that lead to goals or lead to opportunities for other sides. So I think it's a bit harsh to look at it from that side. I do agree, though, that I think that United need to either look for another goalkeeper or go for De Gea and not piss about and, and ruin what could be a good season for him. I mean, he's still been quite a, an important player for them so far over the last couple of years and he's kept made so many points for them, to be fair. I think it'd be a bit harsh to just chuck him out at the moment. But if yeah. you've got to move on, I think Onana's a good option. It is a very good option. I think it's a cracking sign if they do pull it off myself. Um, <clears throat> I, I do think when, you, when you're saying about the, the, you know, go back and you could find a mistake, we're all goalkeepers. De Gea's problem is that they're always high-profile mistakes. He does it in high-pressure games. And, I mean, you, you think back to the, was it the quarterfinal of the Europa League this year against Seville? And yeah. It, 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 him and Maguire at the back. I know Maguire ultimately made the pass that cost them the goal, but De Gea should not have given him that ball in that first place. Put him straight in centre back, straight in, in, in pressure. They know, he knows Maguire is not a, you know the most confident centre back. So um, yeah, it, it always seems to be a really high profile mistake with De Gea. At West Ham, you know, towards end of the season when they're in the running at, at the uh, the London Stadium, that uh, was it. Jared Bowen, where no, yeah. not Jared Bowen. It wasn't. It was um, I can't remember. Who it was now. It was one of the. Uh, no, it's gone. It just just the, the really weak effort at the at De Gea's near post and he just dived and like kind of dived over the ball and it trickled in. And and again, that was right in the midst of a of a Champions League running to try and secure Champions League. So that's De Gea's problem. They're always high profile mistakes with him. Yeah, and I, I think a mixture of that and the fact that, you know, his weak point is clearly his his footwork, which yeah. is the complete opposite of what Ten Hag wants in a in a goalkeeper is has led to the fact that despite him being player of the year for about seven out of the last eight years, 
they, they seem quite eager to move on from him now they've got the opportunity, which is a shame. He's been a great player for the club. He, he didn't start off great. A lot of kind of similar conversations to when Lissandro Martinez joined of, you know, his size and the position and the physicality of the league. But, he, he, you know, he's proved them wrong. And Flat I think a lot, last season... He? Coming out from he corners, did. he weren't commanding at all in corners yeah. and things like that. Yeah, definitely that. But I think last season was definitely one of his weakest. And a lot of that was down to the, the changing style of play. So if he's out of contract and they've got the opportunity to move on from him, it probably seems like the right time if they're if they're looking long term. But uh, that's Manchester United anyway. Like I said, new number seven, Garnacho. I'm sure he's crying privately. I'm sure there was part of him that was hoping to get that shirt uh, number this seat uh, this summer. Sorry, but uh, not to be. Um, but uh, a rumor or a report that's come out in the, in the last couple of hours or so, lads. I sent it to to you sort of uh, about an hour ago to say that I was going to bring it up, but it's the latest with Kylian Mbappe and PSG. So been a lot of talk around his contract and options on extending and him having the option of leaving and all this kind of stuff. But I was going to read this to you, and then Aggie, I'll come to you first on on your thoughts on where he could potentially go, what his options are, and what PSG options are in terms of cashing in on probably what will become the world's most expensive player. But uh, Mbappe has been warned that PSG will be forced to sell some of his teammates if he tries to move to Real Madrid on a free transfer next summer. Mbappe has been given a deadline of the 31st of July this year to commit to staying at PSG to uh, until at least the summer of 2025. Otherwise, he will be sold to the highest bidder next month. So, yeah, PSG have accepted that they can't force Mbappe to sign an extension. So they've basically said you've got, what, three weeks, three and a bit weeks to sign a new two-year deal or we're selling you in August. So, Adam, what do you think to that scenario, the politics behind it, where they stand? Because you've now got one of the world's most high-profile clubs and potentially the the player that's about to come, the uh, the, the holder for highest uh, transfer fee. So what are your thoughts with where they stand there? I think if your PSG and Mbappe is that adamant that he wants out, you've got to cash in because it's similar sort of situation to what we've been talking about with Mason Mount, but on a much higher scale because Mbappe, of course, is worth a lot more. With um, his contract up at the end of next season, you either lose him for nothing and keep him for a year or you, you have the option to cash in. And I think from PSG, it makes sense just to let him go. And I think the number one spot for him at the moment is Real Madrid, isn't it? And you think with that squad that Real Madrid are building at the moment, the youth that they've got there, they've added Bellingham, they've added another couple of midfielders there as well. Um, and then just add Mbappe, who, of course, we know he's, he's not even in his prime yet, I dare say, and he's still quite young, still got a lot to go at. For the next 10 years or so, Real Madrid are going to be the side to beat in Europe, I think. And, of course, in Spain as a result of that. Yeah. yeah. I've just got in my head um, the, the dodgeball uh, meme. Just It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it... I hope it pays off. Just yeah. PSG, they've, they've, I think they've realised that they've just gave him the earth and they've gave him too much power. And they're just kind of recouping some of that power back by saying, OK, well, if you're not going to do this, we're going to sell all your mates, essentially, which is borderline on blackmail at some point, you might you might want to call it. So I think it's a little a little bit of an interesting situation. I, I personally, I think whoever ends up with Mbappé is um, it's a bit of a poison chalice, I think, because it's just, it just seems like he's got such an ego. <clears throat> and PSG have just done nothing but fed into that ego for the, for the last five years. So... Yeah. Um, whoever whoever's got him needs needs to rein him down a bit because can you imagine him in the dressing room and you know at United or at Liverpool or anything like that? I mean, I can't even imagine an English club, Barman City, 
affording him. And obviously they've got Haaland, so there's no way obviously they're going to sign him. But I just I just think Real Madrid I think is the only destination for him if it um, if he is, is going to go. Um, but yeah, it's a weird situation. I mean, it, would you not class it as blackmail? What PSG have, have essentially said: if you don't do this, we're going to sell your teammates. Um, I don't think so. I, I personally, I think Mbappe is more the one with the gun in his hand as opposed to PSG because because they're right. Look, PSG are sitting on a player that they could potentially get close to two hundred million for. Uh, you know, when all said and done, and and save everything else with things like you know decision-making powers that he's got in his contracts and all that ridiculous stuff. So I, I think they're right. Like if they, if they are put in a position where they lose him for free, that's going to have a massive, massive impact on, on the club's finances. So it doesn't surprise me where they're, they're trying to be, um, I suppose, sensible or cautious of what happens next, because if come September, he hasn't signed and he hasn't been sold, He's going in the summer for a free, you would assume, and, and won't sign a contract between now and then. He might do, you don't know. It's not to say if he doesn't sign this summer, he's, he's definitely leaving. But yeah, he seems like in, in interviews he's had, he seems like he's pretty adamant on leaving. Completely agree. Real Madrid seem the most likely destination. They, they seem to be rebuilding the Galacticos in a sense. But with FFP, can a Premier League team afford to sign him? Can Man City afford to sign him? I, I don't know, and would they want to, like you said, Sam, with Erling Haaland, Manchester United, a lot of rumours circling around when, when the Qatari takeover was getting a lot of media attention, it has died down recently, but saying that if they could force it through this summer, Mbappe would be one of their biggest transfer targets, and Mbappe was open to that, but again, can Manchester United afford that within the, the FFP restrictions? I'm really not sure, so if he does leave PSG right now, I really, really, really cannot see another team that he ends up with other than Real Madrid, which I'm repping the new shirt tonight, boys. It's a, it's a beauty. Um, but yeah, I, I'm really not sure where else he goes. But look, if if they're saying that the deadline is 31st of July, come say three, four weeks time when we're recording again, either he's signing it's all done or he hasn't. It's like, right, what's happening next? I'm sure it'll get a bit more juicy and a bit more uh, a bit more media attention as uh, as the weeks go on. But Adam, you've just dropped a picture. Declan Rice has been confirmed that he will be having his Arsenal medical tomorrow. Tomorrow being Friday. Um, documents and every, all the paperwork is expected to sign over the next 24 hours. So you would assume uh, by the end of this weekend, if not definitely by the time we sit to record episode 57, Declan Rice will officially be an Arsenal player. Um, similar to the, the questions with uh, Mason Mount, I know we've had slight discussions in the rumours, but then it was City were coming in, so what was going to happen? But... Arsenal finished second last season. They're back in the Champions League. They need that extra little bit to just keep them going along with City. Adam, is Declan Rice the kind of player, the kind of man, the kind of person that they want in their team, that they need in that team, that is going to be the difference maker going into next season? Yeah, he absolutely is. And I'm glad that Arsenal have managed to get him because I was going to back Arsenal to win the Premier League next season, just like I did this past season as well. And this signing kind of helps me make my point a little bit stronger, to be fair. They need somebody defensively that, whilst they're trying to play the ball out from the back, is composed under pressure. Declan Rice is that guy. He's also a very strong ball-winning midfielder. He's not afraid of sticking a tackle in, so if there are counter-attacks, he's more than comfortable doing that. He's got a decent pass on him. He is the full package for what you need for somebody just sat in front of the back four, and for Arsenal, that's something that they have lacked. And I think that, along with the potential addition at centre-half as well, maybe Timber, if that does happen, alongside Saliba... I think defensively, Arsenal are going to be solid. It's just then working on that depth a little bit more. Of course, they've just signed another attacking-minded player. 
maybe need another striker in case anything happens to Jesus in place of uh, Nketiah because he didn't really match up to the job. But I think Arsenal are looking like they've addressed what let them down last season. They've learnt from their errors. And what a lot of people saw is, you know, is this a one-off Arsenal side that, that might just have had a good year? No, this is a young Arsenal side that has shown a lot of promise. And Mikel Arteta has looked at what Arsenal missed out on last season what they struggled with, what they needed, and he's addressed that straight away. And I think Declan Rice is exactly the sort of player that Arsenal needed. Do you agree with that, Sam? Or have you got a counter-argument to that on, on where he puts Arsenal going into next season? No, I agree with everything he said. Ball, maybe Arsenal win at league. I'm uh, once bitten, twice shy on that. Once bitten, twice shy on that one. So. I was thinking, is this like just being stubborn here and finding any reason yeah. to justify it? But Yeah, it's, um, I'm not, not going to be as, um, as willy-nilly jumping over to Arsenal this time round, but... Uh, no, it's, it's only going to help. I think it's exactly the sort of player they needed. Someone that's really going to show up that middle. Um, yeah, with the signing of um, the, the centre-half, like you mentioned as well. It's, uh, Timber. Yeah, the, Timber, of course. Yeah, they're, they're making some good moves. Still not uh, too impressed with the Havertz signing. Um, I, I know Mudge made a good point in the chat earlier about, obviously, Chelsea have had a lot of uh, attacking quality players over the years that just haven't worked at Chelsea and they've gone elsewhere and, and they've flourished. And it is a good point, I do think, actually. And, it's, and it is worth bearing in mind because, uh, yeah, we'll see. It's a completely different structure of club. It's more expressive, more free-flowing attacking football. So maybe it is a good move for him. But I think the jury is definitely still out as far as the Havertz uh, signing is concerned. Yeah, and maybe Havertz is that player that Adam mentioned there in terms of if Jesus gets injured or anything else like that. But I, I do have to agree. Signing Declan Rice, signing uh, Kai Havertz, who, again, he's, he's scored a Champions League winning goal. So he's, he has got some pedigree there in Chelsea. have been in a bit of turmoil behind the scenes and a bit all over the place. Um, the signing of Timber as well, if the reported fee is correct at 40 million plus five in add-ons, is for me the signing of the season. He's a fantastic centre-back. He's got the ability to play right back at a high level as well. And he's very, very young. So what a signing. And, and with those three signings as your sort of main trio, what a statement of intent from Arteta and the board as to what they want to build on after last season's uh, successful uh, campaign, I suppose. Again, all said and done, they would have taken everything that they ended up with. It was just the circumstances in which they fell off that might have left a bit of, of a bit of sweet taste in the mouth. But uh, yeah, what a statement of intent from Arsenal with those three signings as we uh, as we head to pre-season. But uh, before we we uh, get into pre-season and and the very early happenings of what's happening on the domestic front, uh, there is a very quick point to be made in conversation around England under 21s. Now, it's not a conversation that we've had in terms of preview in the tournament. Quite surprisingly, I'll be honest, I've not really seen too much in terms of coverage. And it was only a couple of games ago where I actually saw that lineups popping up on Twitter, and I thought, oh, are they friendlies? And it turned out. Um, it was the Euros, so yeah, maybe a bit more uh, backing for the boys when it comes to that one in terms of how they promote it and how they, they get behind it. But uh, well, Just a quick one before you before you dive into that, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll explain a little bit behind that. Um, there is no there's no TV coverage for it whatsoever in the UK. Uh, the, the, BBC, oh, wow. the BBC didn't want to pick it up. Uh, ITV didn't touch it. Uh, Sky didn't want to touch it. And for some reason, the, the whole tournament has gone completely undocumented on, on UK, um, UK uh, TV. The only way you can possibly watch it, and I did, must admit, I did watch about 20 minutes worth of the England-Portugal game. Um, yeah. And it, you have to go on UEFA.com and you have to stream it. It's the only way in, in the UK you'll be able to watch that coverage. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's been literally no coverage, and that's why, because they're just not showing it in the UK, which is an absolute crime for me. 
Yeah, it is a bit. But uh, look, lads, um, on uh, Saturday, England under-21s are in the Euros final facing Spain under-21s. In their five games so far, they're yet to concede a goal. Uh, they beat Czech Republic 2-0, Israel 2-0, Germany 2-0, Portugal 1-0, and then Israel again in the semi-finals. Uh, on Wednesday, 3-0 as well. So won all five games. They've not conceded a goal yet. And they head into Saturday evening, 5pm kickoff against Spain under-21s. But yeah, whether or not, the fa- surely the final will be picked up somewhere. But you would assume that if that would have, have to have been sorted by now. So yeah, really, really bad. But Sam, looking at a couple of the games, you're probably the biggest supporter of, of the of the international team out of a lot of us. Aggie's just delusional because he just shouts it's coming home and, and that's about it. But um, <laughs> what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on on the tournament so far and you know how that looks for England's future going into into future major tournaments and the kind of players that could potentially be coming through. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I'll be honest, I've only watched 20 minutes of the, the old tournament, which is pretty poor for me, to be fair. If, again, if it were on telly, I probably would have watched more of it. It's just a bit not really accessible on the UEFA.com website. Um, yeah, it's only good. Of course it is. It's only good you're getting these these young players that, that are playing in these high-pressure finals at an, at an early stage. Um, I, but I will say, what was it now? I bet it was about, what, five years ago when we won the under-17s Eight. or 18s World Cup? Yeah, 18s, I think it was. It was, uh, I think the biggest name in that squad was Phil Foden, wasn't it? I think he was part of that squad that that won the World Cup. Uh, And and now you look at the England squad and we're one of the best squads in the world. So, yeah, we seem to have, um, it seems to be a bit of a conveyor belt, a talent coming through at the minute with with the English product, which is fantastic. So, yeah, as long as the under-21s doing well, as long as all the youth uh, in the grassroots are doing well, it's it's only only good news for the the senior side. So I'm glad you said that because I'm going to bring in a stat for you. I think it was about five or six years ago, the last time England under-21s got to the Euros final um, and they played Germany. Okay. So I think it was five of that Germany squad went on to win the World Cup. Ooh, okay. So it would, have been, it would have been before 2014, so a while ago. Um, and seven of, I think six or seven of the England team went on to play for Sunderland. <laughs> so, <laughs> so oh as I as I mentioned at the start of like you know you seeing like the Telegraph in two thousand and eight this is going to be the England team in World Cup twenty twenty and all that kind of stuff and it's very you might get one or two, um, you know, in terms of the system like you would expect the team that is now this will be our World Cup team in five years or whatever and yeah, things that, like that. But it's 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 never ever the same, is it? And I was looking at the team and I was thinking, like, who of this who of this squad like excites me for the future? Like Gibbs White, maybe I know you've said his name a couple of times, Sam has sort of given him the opportunity in the full team. Levi Colwell, who was phenomenal at Brighton last year on loan from Chelsea. I imagine he'll get a chance at Chelsea. He's been from what I've seen pretty much an integral part of this campaign so far. But other than that, like they've not got an out-and-out striker. They played Gibbs White and Anthony Gordon up top in the uh, Gordon, in the Israel yeah. game, but um, which you know they got a three-nil win and all's well and good. But who have we got in the future once Harry Kane steps aside? I'm I'm not really too sure at the minute. But uh, you know, well, Tony's approaching thirty, and it's a great point you make. And I will say, teams like Germany, um, they take their uh, under-21 silverware very seriously, and they will. They will sacrifice players out of the senior squad and t- t- tell them to drop into the under-21s just so they've got a better chance of winning it. So that's why it makes more sense of when, obviously, the, the World Cup winning squad, that would say there was five or so uh, members of that that team that beat England um, all them years ago. 
So, so that doesn't surprise me too much. The thing is with England, and especially when we've got Southgate in charge, Southgate likes to bl- blood them in early in the in the senior squad. So you're looking at these under-21 players now, the, the really good under-21 players are already in the senior team. You're looking like you're Bellingham. You, I don't know, Rice, I don't know how old he is. Um, you know, there's, there'll, there'll, there'll a handful, Foden probably still qualified for under-21, they're probably think. Um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of players that you'd think should be knocking on the door now. I think, like you say, Morgan uh, Gibbs-White is, is pretty much the only player that could, but we've got an absolute plethora of talent in that 10 roles, so yeah. he's not going to probably get in any time soon. And I think I think that's the main issue. I, I think the under-21 is so close age-wise to the senior side, they should already be kind of knocking on the door at the 21, 21 level. So I think to really see the products, you know, the fruition, I think you need to go back a stage further. I think you're looking at under 18s, under 19s to make it into the senior, and that, that's your exciting crop. You're under 21s. <clears throat> I mean, whenever I think of England under 21s, the name Nigel Rio Coca always comes into my head. <laughs> I was waiting because I was going to bring him in. I was he, literally he just, sat he, here he, waiting. He seems to have, he seems to have captained that side for about 10 years. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but he was just always sent to be captain in that side. I don't know how he stuck around so long. Well, one of, what, what I was going to bring up was the tournament where he was captain and Stephen Taylor, I think it was Netherlands, went to penalty shootout and Stephen Taylor was injured as penalty anything. On yeah, because yeah, <laughs> obviously it got so far down, he had to take it. But the reason Rhea Coker was still playing for them at 23 was because the rule was if you were 21 or under when the qualifiers Qualify, yeah. started, yeah. You could still play for him. So, like, qualifiers took, like, two years, and he was playing in the final at 23, and it was just ridiculous. But, yeah, yeah. I was literally sat here. All I had in my head was, like, Nigel Riacoco when you were just talking then. That, that's, whenever I think under twin ones, his name always comes into bed, and he just seems to have captained them so long. And, and like I say, you, you seem to have a sniff in the um, in the senior team, and that's purely because if they had other players of, of a similar age, your Paul Scholes, your Gerard, your Lampard, who also played in similar positions, that just played in that England national side for the next 10 years. And I think the same is going to happen with this uh, senior side. You've got your Rice, you've got Bellingham, you've got Mounts on, on the periphery, you've got Foden. Uh, you know, I could list the whole squad off here, Rashford. Then they're still young players in their own right. So they're going to still be in the England squad for the next probably 10 years. So yeah, these under-21s that are two or three years behind them, they're not going to see that because they're 10 year. That's going to, you know, going to take them into the 30s and they're still going to be this England side, that's the senior side that's still playing now. I think that's, yeah, a, that's what has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I think it's a very, very fair point. Like, if you're good enough, you're in. It doesn't matter how yeah. old you are. Like your Jude's and Rice have been playing there very young and Foden, Rashford. So, yeah, so it's a very fair point. Um, I do agree with that. Adam, any thoughts on, on the England under-21s? Will you uh, will you be loading up uh, UEFA.com on, on Saturday evening, um, winding up the hamster wheel to get some electricity? <laughs> I know you're not uh, much of a streamer, but uh, what are your thoughts on the success and what that could potentially mean for, for the short-term and, and probably long, long-term success of England? Back what Sam said, it can only be a good thing, really. And we look at, in the past of what this squad's done before when Gareth Southgate was the manager of the under-21 side. And a lot of these players played under them, under him at that point and have come through the ranks together. And that it's kind of helped us build on to the success that we've had on the international level, getting to the semi-finals and to the final um, on, on the couple of occasions. A couple of players that I've just been looking through the uh, under-21s that have been called up that I do like that you haven't mentioned, one of which is Max Ahrens. I've been a big fan of his for a long time. You love was, Max Ahrens. I do. I think he, you've, you've got a lot of time for him. I think he's a great fullback, and I think he'll be probably going to be the one that's uh, that's going to make the biggest impact defensively for us 
from but, the but you say that, and that's Sam exactly. said there, Reese James, Trent, yeah, like, all these young players. That's exactly, right. exactly the point I was about to make then. You're yeah. absolutely right, but that's just my opinion, and from what I've seen from him, that's why I, I, I think that. But again, I, if I'm proven wrong, I'm proven wrong. You look at, like you've said, with Reese James and Trent Alexander-Arnold, but it's just how many good right-backs that we've got. So have they really like fallen off a cliff, so to speak, or is it the fact that they've been outperformed by players in that position? We've had... You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right to bring in a, a Max Aaron's in. I'll let you carry on with your point in a sec. But, but like we say, Kyle Walker, obviously, is, is on his way out of the senior yeah. side. Let's play with his age. Uh, Kieran Trippier probably hasn't got too many years left here. So there's two, two right-backs that will be on the way out. So there's definitely room for him to be a squad player, absolutely. But I think that's all it'll be. I can't see... I mean, again, I might be completely wrong and you might be right here, but I can't see him uprooting... Um, uh, Reese James. I mean, potentially it depends on the way Trent Alexander Arnold's career is going to go now. Because obviously, if he does want to take midfield seriously, he might might be done with right back. So it, it does see. I know we're we're only got a two game sort of sort of stretch to address it on, but I can't see him moving back to that right back role anytime no, no, soon. Midfield's got to be for him pushing forward, and it. To be fair, he, he he proved himself as a midfield player much better than he has done as a right back playing for England. But yeah, even if Max Owens goes as like a backup player for Reese James or, or battles yeah. with Reese James for that first spot at right back, he is a player that I could see having a decent international career. Um, another couple, Jacob Ramsey mentioned um, from last season, I thought he'd had quite a good second half of the season under Emery. I think when he came in, he'd helped kind of elevate that Aston Villa side, hadn't he? And I think Ramsey had kind of performed okay. I don't see him... Where, where, where would you say his best position is? Because I can't... I can't, I don't watch a lot, a lot of Villa games, so, you know, if there's any Villa fans watching here, please, please feel free to pipe up. But is he a centre-mid? Is he an out-and-out centre-mid? Or is he kind of more of an attacking midfielder that can sometimes play out wide? I don't really kind of know his position. He's more of a centre midfielder, and I think I'm not going to say he's going to replace Bellingham or Rice, but I'm thinking more from a depth perspective because again we've got younger players, so it's going to be a case of whilst these younger players gel and obviously only improve over the next five to ten years, there's naturally going to be a generation that we are going to end up skipping, aren't we? That aren't really yeah, going to get that's into this my side. Point. And I yeah, think the under twenty one is always the generation that seems to be skipped. It's it's normally you go back one third, it's the under eighteens, under nineteens that seem to break into the English squad mm. rather than you know under twenty ones. And just, go on. No, no, go on, because I'm I'm just gonna close it off with a question to you both. So carry right. on. And like we've already said with a striker, we don't have an out and out striker in this under twenty one side. It's all midfielders, attacking midfielders or wingers that we're using as strikers at the moment. So it wouldn't be the worst thing if it did skip this generation at the moment. There's just a couple of players that I'd probably say would work for us when it comes to the time of, you know, your Jordan Henderson, your, your Kyle Walker retiring. So, OK, so question for you both. I've just had a very quick look there because of what you were talking about. So the semi-final against Israel on Wednesday, of the 11 players that started and the five players that came on, so 16 players in total, how many were under the age of 21 years old? Oh, okay. Uh, under twenty-one. Right. Under twenty. Okay. So twenty years of age or younger, of the sixteen players that featured in the semi-final. Sixteen featured under twenty-one. I'm going to say I'm just for the fact you've asked this. I'm going to guess it's low. So I'm going to say I'm going to say six under the age of twenty-one. Six out of sixteen, Aggie. Are you? I was going to say seven. Like you, okay, so you're going to say seven. Are you going to stick with seven or are you going to yeah, change no, I'm it? Stick with seven. Though? Okay, um, you're right on it being low, Sam. It was three. Wow. Levi well, that, Colwell, 20. James Trafford, 20. 
and Harvey Elliott, 20. Uh, majority are 21. Uh, and then you've got quite a lot that are 22. Smithrow, 22. Gordon, 22. Uh, Angel Gomez, 22. Uh, Curtis Jones, 22. Gibbs White, 23. Uh, James Garner, 22. Uh, Luke Thomas, 22. I can keep going. Like Some of the players that came on, Oliver Skip for Spurs, 22. So... They're not, uh, they're not, they're not going to break into that England squad. They, they should be there uh, or thereabouts now. I mean, how old Bellingham? What, 19, 20? And, and, he's, and he's probably our most yeah. important important centre midfielder right now. So, yeah, it, they've got to be knocking on that England door either now or already have been. I think if, if they're not going to, then they're going to end up being one of them weird late bloomers like you know a Jamie Vardy sort of thing where they don't make the debut until 29 or something like that. So, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a very short window for an under-21 uh, team. And I think if, if you're already in the under-21s, the odds are you've already made your imprint on the on the senior team. I mean, I, I think someone like uh, hudson Adoy, they were they were right at the senior level, weren't he? And at one point, I think he play, must have played half the, um, half the qualifiers in one particular, probably the World Cup qualifiers that have gone. Yeah. And then he's just completely fizzled out. I think he ended up actually going back into the um, the under twenty ones to play in their, their championships just to give him a bit of quality. And and now he's obviously I think he's gone over to uh, to Saudi's Anthony. So yeah, it's um, it, the under twenty ones a weird one. It just it seems to skip a generation once they get once they get to that point. Yeah, well, uh, with that tournament rule in place, the next set of games that that lineup is going to look completely different based on the fact that only three of those sixteen players were actually under the age of 21. But I will quickly just correct myself. Uh, Jude is 20, he turned 20 last week. So that's why I missed that. I didn't realise. So a happy birthday to him, belatedly. Um, and yeah, that is going to be a very different England under 21 team the next time it comes around. But that's enough for that for now. Good luck. Do we do we want to do a quick prediction? We have absolutely no idea. I don't even know what players are playing for Spain. If Gavi and Pedri have got in the team, I didn't even look. But uh, let's just for the sake of it, put our names to a score um, for the final. Sam, we'll start with you. I mean, I feel like I shouldn't really because I'm an absolute bastard of a jinxer. So <laughs> I don't really want to back against England, but I don't really want to jinx them and back them. I'm not, I'm not back to single result, and they've got this far to the final. But uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to jinx them. I'm going to say England are going to win the Euro under the 21 Championships, and they're going to beat Spain three two. That's fair, Aggie. Uh, I'm going to say two one to England. That's fair, and I'm going to go two one to Spain. I'm going to be that guy, not because I'm wearing the Madrid shirt, just I don't Halla. know. Mate, I like football yeah, collection. Got me, got me emailed today. Got me emailed today. Mate, it's a Chesterfield fan. I earlier what the away oh, club is. I've got serious issues with Southampton shirt. I can't lie. The championship I, team, mate. That's fine. They're not a rival. Got a team from the division. I'm yeah, I'm I'm all, I'm all for foreign shirts. I love different foreign shirts, but you can't have you can't have a Southampton top. That's so outrageous. <laughs> mate, it was a fiver for charity. I can't I can't say no, and it was it's a nice top as well. So uh, I'll I'll pull it out if it's if I tell you what if it's here by this time next week, I'll uh, I'll wear it on episode fifty seven. And uh, we'll we'll discuss it then. Um, but before we close off football, we do have the matter of a, a Chesterfield update. Uh, Sam, I did mention about potentially talking Derby, but not too much happening at the moment. I know your big thing at the minute, your main sort of point is that you don't like the fact that they are favourites. So have you got anything to say or is it just a case of not too much happening? Give it time and we'll see going into the start of the season. Yeah, I definitely don't like us being favourites, but I can't really argue with the logic behind it, I guess. 
Um, still, every Derby fan and his dog is crying out for a striker. It's something that we, we desperately need. We keep seeing these odd names banding about, but nothing in concrete. So we have made a couple of pretty solid signings, I will, will say. I'm not going to go into any of, any of that depth just yet. What, what I think I'm just going to do is I'm just going to wait until our, our business is over and I'm just going to conclude it all in a, in a future episode, to be fair. That's fair. That sounds good. But Aggie, Chestfield, fixtures today were released. First pre-season game has taken place. Talk us through what's happening. First of all, pre-season, Matlock, the yearly game. How did it go down? Yeah, I'm not going to take too much from that. They're two divisions below us and we're favourites to win our league and we beat them 9-0. So I'm just going to take that with a <laughs> pinch of salt and think, you know what, if we can do that against sides in our division or perform from what people have been saying to that standard, what they've seen of uh, the, the new signings, Will Grigg, Tom Naylor, uh, those sort of players that are really eager to impress and get involved within the game. So it, it shows a lot of promise from that side of things. We are still favourites. Our odds just keep on getting in better and better. Um how did, old... um, how did my boy uh, Bailey Hobson play? Played well, mate. A lot of people are very impressed with him and think he's going to yeah. be very close to fighting for a, a first-team spot, which is surprising because that we'll attacking... Them, mate. Yeah, that attacking three that we got of Dobra, um, Mandeville and Colclough looked like there were just three players that are always going to be on the team sheet and I'm sure Skin will agree with me on that. But then I agree, but I do like I do like the idea, uh, having seen Bailey at... Alfreton, I do like the idea of him sitting in one of those two centre midfield roles. I know at the minute it's sort of a rotation between Jones, Banks and Old Acos just signed a new contract, but I do like the idea of him pushing one of those three for that bit of centre midfield depth with not the really option of playing that. Though. Not really. Do not think? I think I think he actually started in that game at centre mid. Did he? That's yeah. Interesting. Is he played mostly uh, out on the right or left for Alfreton, so that's uh, that's interesting. Well, we play Alfreton on Saturday, don't we? So that'll be uh, be an interesting. Is he one tied? <laughs> no, mate. He's good to go. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think Tom Naylor is going to be the nailed on holding midfielder. So it's just who goes. Unbelievable. Book it. Nailers nailed on. He's not even realised he said it. Didn't even read it, did he? <laughs> Click that. Get that new intro, Aggie. There you go. There's your clip. Um, yeah, I think he'll uh, he'll be set to start at Oldham Field. So it's who goes alongside him, really. In terms of the fixture list, I don't know how I've managed to blag myself 20 quid off doing a little game for this, but it's just a game of luck, isn't it? And somehow Dagenham being the eighth games won me some money, so I'll take it. Uh, the fixture list looks very similar to what it was last season. Um, pretty much we start with the same team. We finish with the exact same team. And Boxing Day and New Year's is the exact same team as it has been for the last four years. So... The fixture list looks like it's a little bit in our favour. We do have Oldham in the middle of August, but it's just a, a typical case of the National League. I think we've got six games in the first month, so it's it's going to be all hands busy, on deck busy, straight busy. away. Yeah, busy to get things started. Um, in terms of transfers, not too much to talk about since um, since the goalkeeper from Everton's come on loan. I think other than Pickford. that, he's actually from Everton fans being classed as uh, Pickford's replacement. <laughs> from Everton fans he's a young goalkeeper at the moment played for Chester last year you might have seen me I don't know if you went to Alfreton against Chester but yeah he played every no. game for them last season and Chester fans are really impressed with him and if Pickford obviously goes this year he's not going to be their replacement but I think that it's more of he's their long-term goalkeeper choice and from what people have said again another a player that's that's excelled since he's uh, coming in training so hopefully to be fair to be fair Pickford started that not only didn't he he played for Alfreton he was at Alfreton yeah I mean to be so, fair yeah. also Aaron Ramsdale played for us so yeah there's loads of goalkeepers that go into good things from just playing in, in non-league so it helps and obviously what's going on with uh, Maidenhead at the moment 
and the potential transfer of Kilman, getting them an extra seven million in the National League is always nice, isn't it? So that kind of stuff. But yeah, the fixtures are out. It's uh, starting to get a bit more exciting now. Hopefully, What's that, uh, Aggie? just just talk to us about that for one second. What's that seven million, kid, Mister? Uh, Kilman. Kilman, yeah. Kilman, who oh, signed yeah. for Wolves. For, yeah. um, they... huge, mate, this is huge. This is like Tell football us about that. Tell dreams, us about that. Yeah, they, well, he's not moved yet, but if he is to move, the 20% sell-on clause, I think it was 20% that they had when uh, right, Maiden yeah. had sold him to uh, Wolves, the 20% sell-on clause means that the, I think it's at the moment, he's about 31, 32 million is expected to leave Wolves for, so they'll get 20% So with the, with the assumed fee or rumoured fee, Maiden Head would be due to get 6.8 million. Oh, wow. Which is huge for that level. So yeah, I think that's that's class, and that's what I don't mind seeing when you you know you're selling players to the bigger sides because it's always going to happen, isn't it? You're going to lose players to some sides above. So when they sell on clause, it's always nice to see. But yeah, we, we're still looking for another striker. I think it looks like Andrew Dallas is not signing with us, despite what everything that's been going on. So uh, we are looking at another one. I've seen a lot of rumours about a striker that's coming in Championship, League One level. So uh, he's pre agent at the moment. So hopefully. Pen is put to paper over the next couple of days, and we've got him in time for uh, the second half of the preseason. Do it. Drop it. Drop it. Mm-hmm. Who is it? I can't possibly do that, can I? Will <laughs> Grigg all over win. again, isn't it? <laughs> it's Andrew Dallas all over again. He's breaking my heart telling me he's not signing all of a sudden, but apparently the deadline is this weekend, so hopefully a positive update. But from what Aggie's told me, I'm not holding my hopes up any uh, any higher than what they need to be. But, uh, yeah, should be uh, should be all right. Last game of the season is a home game, which is what you want when you're chasing a title. Hopefully, Aggie, in that game, it will end with Gaz on the pitch, slipping over um, just after uh, Jamie Grimes has uh, lifted the trophy up and it is back to league football. But who knows? Who knows? Um, I'm going to bring tennis in very quickly. Now, uh, Wimbledon started this week, and I'll be honest, I completely forgot, didn't even see it, didn't even clock it. Um, and me and Aggie probably should have had a, a brief discussion over it. Now, Sam, usually, historically, you've been one to, to sort of lead the conversations, drop comments in the chat of what's happening. But we were talking earlier today and it, you, you've not really been invested or, or took much notice this year. Um, Andy Murray is currently on centre court playing in his first round match. Um, and as I speak, I'm just very quick loading it up. He has lost the first set. So he, he currently is 1-0 down yeah. in sets. Close, he lost it at a tie break 7 6. So he is pushing the fifth seed uh, close, but he is losing at the moment. But you've not really, normally I'd say, you know, Sam, who's, who's strength of it, Nadal's not there anymore, Federer's not there anymore. So I don't really know. It's been many a year since I've watched tennis properly. But what are sort of your some of your favourite memories from sticking Wimbledon on that being the main tournament that you would watch with the with the prestige and the, the history and the tradition that goes with it? What are your some of your favourite memories from watching Wimbledon over the summer? I have to go to just one particular memory, and it has to be the 2013 when when Murray won for his first one. He's won obviously two Wimbledon titles. His, his first one for me was the most iconic, beating uh, beating Djokovic in three sets. Absolutely unbelievable. You just you could see the emotion on his face. Dropped to his knees as the um, as he hit the final uh, match match point, and then he obviously did the famous climb into the uh, into the royal box, and uh, yeah, and he, he lifted the gold trophy. I mean, Murray's probably going to kill me for. Not knowing anything for the, the trophy there, but yeah, that's that's definitely my favourite uh, Wimbledon memories. I think many uh, many Brits will. But then again, I know a lot of Brits are quite split when it comes to Andy Murray with his his bit of tongue in cheek hatred hatred towards uh, the English. But that doesn't bother me too much. But yeah, the uh, 2013 win over Djokovic always stands out to me. And uh, he's obviously a long road 
a long way off from where he was. That was probably of his peak of his powers just off the back. I think he'd won the US Open just before then and he was just starting to come on, starting to win things. It, it was sort of Michael Smith-esque in the darting world where we're always the nearly man, never quite got there. Then all of a sudden he hit a bit of a purple patch and and uh, yeah, he, he, he got the US Open and not long after he'd, he'd won his uh, first Wimbledon title. So it has to be that, that era for me, Andy Murray. He were an unbelievable player to watch. Just pure power. There was he had the power and finesse where like you got your Federers where they were pure pure finesse and uh, Djokovic where he's, he's pure, like a robot is so good but then Murray just had so much passion and power and it, it, it were a joy to watch at times and yeah that uh, that 2013 Andy Murray when he was uh, probably peak Wimbledon. Yeah, fair play to him to be fair for still playing and, and having had a bit mm. of a mini recovery his, his, his hips are uh, a lot of dust aren't they? Yeah, not many people will be able to come back from uh, from what he's done with his his hip operations. I don't think there is hips anymore, are they? I think, but his whole hips are just fucking synthetic. So yeah, yeah what what he's still doing to what he's had to have done to his body is unbelievable. The grit and determination that he's showing, uh, and obviously fifth seed right now is you say he's playing on on centre court, taking him first set to a tiebreak. It just shows he's still got that quality in him, and he's he's, he's going to be no pusher. I, you can imagine. If you're the fifth seed at Wimbledon, I, mean, I don't know. And I think I had a look at his name earlier. And I'm the same. I'm a, I'm a, I've not said his name, mate, because I don't even want to attempt to yeah, butcher it. <laughs> I, I must admit, I will have my hands. I'm a part timer. I only literally take watch tennis when Wimbledon's on. Even this year, I've done that, and that's purely just because I'm at um, Katie's mum and dad's house. So I really haven't had the opportunity to watch it this year. But um, yeah, you're, if you, you imagine being the fifth seed, and you think the first round draw's coming out, you're thinking, right, I want a nice, uh, nice steady draw to start me off, and then you draw Andy Murray on on, a, on centre court, home crowd behind him. That fifth seed must have rolled his eyes, and it. That's that's home field advantage for Murray, in it. Yeah, massively. So yeah, you got to feel for the fifth seed game, Murray. But it sounds like he's uh, he's doing well against him. Obviously beating him in the first set. So yeah, that's pretty much it for my uh, my Wimbledon breakdown on this one. I do apologise for not going into much more detail, but. There we go. No, that's fair, mate. That's absolutely fair. But uh, I'm sure if Murray does somehow get through this game, um, he will be British again. You mentioned the tongue-in-cheek comments, especially before that first Wimbledon, Wimbledon win. It was always British when he was winning and Scottish when he lost. But uh, I, I think that that win finally brought him on side. As you know, everyone always wanted that British player to to win at Wimbledon, and he finally did that in 2013. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's tennis. So maybe as uh, some of the players that, that are more recognisable to us advance in the tournament and the and the playing field shortens down, we'll we'll pick it back up. But uh, yeah, that's that for now. Uh, we'll move on to cricket. The second Test of the Ashes took place over the last week at the home of cricket Lords in London, and Australia went two 0 up, winning by forty three runs. That day five lads. I don't know if you watched it. I watched it. Ben Stokes. I said it in the chat, but I'm going to put it on record. We always talk about clutch players in the NFL, and it is a term that can be used across all of sports. And it is players that step up when their team or their performance or whatever needs it the most in the biggest moments. And Ben Stokes has to be in the conversation for most clutch players in the whole of sport. He did it in the World Cup final. He did it at Headingley in the in the last uh, Ashes series on home soil. And he tried his absolute best to do it on Sunday. England were in absolute turmoil. It looked like it was going to be a, a thrashing. And then he just took full control. He, he kept 
you know, he was on strike for the majority of the time he was on the field. 155 runs off of 214 balls, strike rate of 72, which in Test cricket facing 214 balls shows you everything about how attacking he was. Sam shaking his head like I'm talking a foreign language, but uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely brilliant. It was great to watch Ben Stokes yet again, even though no he's not 100 off. There's no flint off him oh, on his own in 05. Mate, trust me, as a man that has the uh, 2005 Ashes series as close to his heart when it comes to anything sports-related, um, in terms of a cult icon, Freddie Flintoff is right up there. I love that series and that summer so, so fucking much. Um, I've, I've not really watched cricket too much over the last few years, but that, you know, I watched everything that was cricket-related for years off the back of that. Um, absolutely has, has there ever been a more dominant cricket performance than that, that 05 Ashes performance from him? I'm not. I'm not. In terms of dominant, I, I, I'm not sure if that's like the right word, but I, I don't know. It, it just. It was like he was a man at war on his own, and like I don't. I don't really know how else to explain it. Like he just put the whole team on his back, and whether it was his bowling, whether it was his batting, with it just. I, I I can't put it into words. Like how how iconic I used to have the Ashes 2005 series on a dvd set it was like a four dvd set and i used to watch it probably i don't know three or four times a year it was just amazing like yeah it was brilliant but ben stokes doing absolute best tell you what put him in that ashes series and it would have been even better than somehow even better than what it actually was but it wasn't to be he did eventually uh, end up being caught uh, off a, a hazelwood ball um after being dropped twice as well and, and the tailenders couldn't see it through, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, one thing that I wanted to bring up, and I know you lads aren't sort of wouldn't call yourselves cricket fans, but something you did Not see was ago. the uh, was the run out of um, England wicketkeeper Bairstow. Um, in his mind, the, the the ball was over. He started to walk towards the middle of the wicket that cricket players tend to do in between deliveries and talk to their teammate. Um, and as he stepped away, Carey, the wicketkeeper, saw an opportunity through the ball at the wickets and. As they say, within the rules of the game, it was out. But there's been a lot of arguments since about how it goes against the spirit of the game. So, Sam, I'll come to you because that term, it's within the rules, but it's against the spirit of the game. It doesn't just apply to that moment. You can apply that to pretty much... You can find a scenario in any sport where you could apply that term. What are your thoughts on it? As a fan, as as an outsider looking in, but also as, you know, if the Packers in NFL were affected by that sort of scenario, if Derby were affected by that sort of scenario, if England were affected by that, what are your thoughts? It's within the rules, but against the spirits of the, against the spirit of the game. I don't think NFL, anything really comes close to it in NFL. There's nothing, everything kind of black and white, I'd say in NFL, bar maybe. There's no sort of spirit of the game thing. Cricket's big on it. Football's kind of big on it. It's, for me, it's almost like this is the, the closest thing I can put in. It's so, an out, complete outsider that does not follow cricket at all. The closest thing for me is, in football terms, is an opposition team not giving the ball back to the opposition from like a throw-in uh, when they've kicked the ball out of play and then they've gone down and scored. It's that sort of thing where it's a bit, you know, it, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth where they should have, you know what I'm saying, where they should have kicked the ball back They've kicked it out into touch for an injury and, and they've not returned it and they've gone down yeah. the end and they've scored without the other team even seeing the ball. So it's kind of like that when the spirit of the game, you should be giving the ball back to the opposition, but, but on, a, on back to cricket. Um, no, I mean, if it's in the rules, it's in the rules. And I think it, it, it's... It, Bairstow has to look at himself and take some responsibility, I personally think. And again, this is a complete... 
don't want to say the N word. Complete novice. Um, again, I don't. I don't you know. Well, honestly, that could have gone so many ways, and I'm glad it went away. But it did. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Jesus, that's what I get. can't say that, man. Jesus. <laughs> no. Um, Clip that fucking. Yeah, that's yeah, the I've one. Got, that's I've, the I've, one. Not the one. <laughs> I've got previous answers. I'm, so, I'm um, going to be with it. Oh my god! For the nonce word, by the way. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've completely lost my train of thought now, you bastard. Um, but yeah, a base now he has to. I've got to take control of this somehow. But first, has to take some responsibility. I think just his cricketing IQ. Obviously, he must know. I mean, I'm going to ask you, Dawson. So obviously, I've seen the bowl. The bowl's quite wide, and he kind of ducks and. And in his head, that's the end of the play. Why? Why does he assume that's the end of the play when he knows that he knows? Because I've I've seen the Aussies come out and say he does it all the time, and he's done it in the past to players. So why wouldn't he think that someone would do it to him? I think some of it is just force of habit. Like the ball's gone, um, and I do think you do see a couple of pictures of the um, of the umpire where they've kind of just started to adjust or sort of, you, you know, they've moved to say. I'm not fully focused on that moment. So I suppose subconsciously that would say the moment's over, the ball's done, so I'm going to walk. I, I don't think I would have consciously thought the ball is done, I'm now going to move. It's just that force of habit in it. I've, I've, I've missed the ball, ball's been caught, and it's that split second. You do so many times, it's just routine, isn't it? It's not like the the wicketkeeper was stood right behind the stumps and it was a slow bowler. So I don't think there was sort of any conscious thought between behind what he actually did it was just sort of that that force of habit but Still, for me yeah. it's uh, it's within it, the rules and yeah well is this not a problem with the game then it, it, where if, if there's if the player's not 100% sure if the if the play's still alive or not I, I, that's what I can't seem to grasp again I, this just for me not being able to grasp it grasp it properly it just seems to me why would a player not assume that the ball it's like it's like a footballer standing there as they say play to whistle don't they in football you know yeah. everyone stops for a free kick and they'll just carry on running and score well they, no one's blown so it'll be a goal it's a, it's that sort of thing so I don't I can't quite understand why Besto has thought that the play is over when he knows there's a possibility of a of a of a wicket keeper keeping up you know gathering the ball and I, that's what I don't get surely he would know that that ball is still in play just by him playing cricket all them years yeah, it is a kind of, I think you've nailed it there with that play to the whistle analogy. But again, I do just think it is rhythm and routine. Wicketkeeper catches the ball. You're not making a run. It's not been caught. There's no appeal. So the ball's over there and then. But yeah, I think because it was just so quick, like if he'd have stood there for five seconds and then walked off and then it had happened, then it's just, you know, Aussie to take the piss. But fair play to Kerry to be switched on and do it. And I think they did say that it was one of the things they picked up where Bairstow did they noticed he was moving quite quickly away from his crease at the end of the ball. So a half a second, a second later, he, he would have been fine. So that's definitely something for him to learn moving forward. But yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it, where if you're on the benefiting side of it, you think, oh, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. It's genius from Kerry to be switched on. And if you're not, that's where you bring in it's against the spirit of the game. So much on Twitter. You know, I follow a lot of people that like cricket, that follow quick cricket, that are involved in reporting on it. So when that happened, my Twitter feed was pretty much filled with people slagging Australia off for doing it. But again, if it's within the rules of the game, where's the line on they've done wrong? Because they've not cheated. They've not. So, so... And again, again, this is this is me having a completely unbiased opinion on the thing. Don't get me wrong. You know, if I'm watching England and 
and, and that situation occurs where, you know, we're playing Germany and we've kicked the ball out for a German injury. Germany have, have gone down the other end and scored without giving us a ball back. I'd be up in arms about it. Don't get me wrong. I'd be calling them black and blue on Twitter. I'm saying it's disgusting. Cheating bastards, you know, respect the game. And so that is me. So I, I can completely see, and I'm not not defending, you know, either way, really. I just wanted a bit of clarity on as to why Bairstow might have thought that. But, yeah, if, if, it, if, it was, if, if it was my team that was affected by it in, and it was in that particular situation. I'd be, I'd be the one bashing them. So I can definitely see. I think Piers Morgan were very vocal about it, and, and quite a few other uh, cricket big fans. time. Uh, so I can see why they would. If obviously it's it's something that's you know really frowned upon because I've been I've been the same. But yeah, just letter of the law in it. The ladder. The ladder. Aggie, you're the most traditional man that any of us have ever met. Mister Compliance, um, here he Mr. comes. Mister Compliance, here he comes. Um, do you agree with Sam, or are you no? It's within the rules, or are you no? It's in, it's not within the spirit of the game, and it's not upholding all those unwritten rules that are in place. Talk us about your thoughts. I just rules are rules, aren't they? At the end of the day, and rules. That's it. Cut no. that. Move rules. on. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Carry on. It's harsh. It's, it's tough, but at the same time, it's always one of them old sayings, isn't it? It's better safe than sorry. You just wait until the signal's called. It's clear that it is the end of the over, and you're good to to go and, and obviously chat with the other batsmen and, and sort out your strategy for the next over but yeah the, the rules there and it's setting it that it's going to be out if that happens again you've already said that if it works in your favour you chuffed to bits about it if it works against you then arms are all up in the air but it's one of them things you've got to learn from and move on with isn't it it is mate and, and speaking of moving on the, uh, the third test has come thick and fast they've gone from the home of cricket lords in London up to Leeds this week at Headingley. And what looked like a very positive start for England, they managed to bowl, uh, I'm just getting the correct score up now, uh, they managed to bowl Australia out for 263 in day one. Uh, the first and second test had the uh, opening batting team batting throughout the whole of the first day. Uh, so it looked like a really positive start. But after 19 overs, England have also lost three wickets and, and with their runs are actually further behind than what Australia were when they lost three wickets. So, could be one of those. It, it, it's a bit more overcast in England than it has been so far over the last sort of few weeks. So that will definitely play into the bowler's advantage. That's probably why England won the toss and, and elected to bowl first with the more overcast conditions. That does tend to, to favour the bowlers. And that certainly looks like the case with the with the day one performance for both teams. But uh, yeah, look, day five was fantastic in the first test. It was even more fantastic in the second test. So if we can go into day four and day five and... England, uh, you know, seven wickets down and they need 63 runs or a similar sort of situation to what they found themselves in on Sunday. It, again, it could really, really play into a, another really good test in what has been a great series so a far. Very, I'm going to ask you a very basic and, and broad general question about this whole series. Am I right in thinking it's quite a 2-0 to Australia? That's right, mate, yes. Why, if um, England are pushing that well towards these day fives, why is it going so wrong? I don't know. Um, first test was probably a bit of, of naivety, a bit of a lack of experience for some of the team. They've, you know, players like Root and Stokes are, are fantastic, but they have got a lot of sort of players that haven't played at the highest level in the biggest moments. Um, the second day was just it was a race against time, really, and and. Day five was literally at one point England looked like they were nailed on to win, and then it looked like it could have been a draw, and then it was Australia that were definitely going to win. So it's it, it's hard to say with cricket because 
it is really those sort of half hour or hour periods as opposed to one moment where it completely swings it. It's it's more of a case of Australia can have a really good hour and now they're on top of England. Like it, they were really struggling. Ben Stokes come in and start smashing the ball over the park and all of a sudden they're on top. So it's hard to say where it goes wrong because it is more of a, like I said, it's more a, you judge it over someone's had a really good hour as opposed to one moment, like a player scored a goal or someone got sent off or something. It's more that than than anything else so it's hard to say Australia I just think across the board across the starting lineups have got more experience and more talent and more ability and I think that what that's what it comes down to over a five day test Fair enough good answer but uh, that's it for cricket lads and we will review the third test um, next week and hopefully Kemp will have some thoughts um, as well we've got quite a bit to preview next week lads we've got uh, a darts match play so uh, Sam get your readers on read a little bit about the darts over the next week that's, uh, that's a week long tournament match play is one of my, my favourite tournaments of the year one of the biggest on the darting calendar so something to you, for you to look forward to as well but uh, we're going to close this week with Formula 1 Aggie, this will be what five minutes, so uh, and then we'll get stuck into the weekend. So, talk us through first of all what happened in Austria. As yes, again, Sam, outside looking in, guess who won? And I, I, I actually know this one, I know it was Max Verstappen, so not so much an outsider <laughs> this time. I uh, I'll tell you, I, I, did you watch it? No, no I, I, was... I, 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 I didn't watch it, mate. No, so, um, obviously, Katie's dad, a big uh, F1 fan, I just uh, peeked, peeked my head in uh, last Sunday and it says, uh, as he won again, that smiling, and then he like, <laughs> there you he go, like, there you go, that's the one. He didn't quite get the reference, and I went, and he went, Verstappen's won. I says, oh, yeah. So there's apparently there's a bit of a annoying dominance about it at the minute, isn't it? He says, yeah. But he made a good point. He says, yeah, it's not annoying for him though. <laughs> yeah, very true, very <laughs> yeah, true. It's annoying for me, and I'm a Red Bull fan. But Aggie, talk us through what happened in Austria, and as yeah, Max Verstappen wins yet again. He won, but for the first time in about three races he actually didn't lead every lap of the race, which is always nice to see. But despite the fact that Ferrari actually nailed their strategy for a change, Max did come out in second place and the pace of the Red Bull caught the Ferrari pretty quickly and he took first place back without any sort of disruption from uh, Charles Leclerc anyway. And then and uh, then he also argued with his team about pitting so he could get the fastest lap and that's how far in front he ended up getting. So Yeah, it's just Red Bull dominance, isn't it? Once again, what I am excited to see, though, is uh, from a personal perspective as a supporter of McLaren is the upgrades that we've brought in some uh, nice little upgrades for Lando Norris in time for the Austrian Grand Prix got him uh, battling with the Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton quite consistently throughout the race and we didn't have quite enough time to put those uh, upgrades into Piastri's car as well so they're going to be in place for Silverstone this weekend of course we know a lot of what goes off in Silverstone is uh, Lewis Hamilton plays better to the crowd he seems to perform a lot better and of course a couple of years ago he finished the race with only three tyres and still managed to complete it in first place so hopefully we get to see a different winner to Max Verstappen in Silverstone but yeah Austria was pretty much one of those again it's just a Max Verstappen gets pole position Max Verstappen wins this promise from uh, McLaren of course with the upgrades Mercedes still trying to battle for that third place finish themselves I think Checo got it in the end and uh, Ferrari actually did the strategy correctly, which if they'd done two years ago, might have been Ferrari winning the Drivers' Championship instead of uh, Max Verstappen. So hopefully that's a turned corner for three teams there. And we're not too far away from seeing a bit more competition with at least uh, Max Verstappen, as we know that uh, Checo's a bit behind him at the moment. OK, Silverstone this weekend, who have you got winning? <laughs> I'm <laughs> Max Verstappen. <laughs> um, I'm going to go... Even I got that joke. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. I'm going to go against it, and I'm going to say Lewis Hamilton. I'm gonna, oh wow! Yeah, home Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. That'd I, be, I think uh, that'd be pretty iconic, wouldn't it, if he won that? Yeah, I Under think so, yeah. at the moment, Wait especially far. with it just being Red Bull at the moment with the dominance. But Max doesn't seem to perform as well at Silverstone as Lewis does, and hopefully that will help edge him a little bit further and get him over the line. It'll be close without a shadow of a doubt, and I think Max will be second. Um, I'm going to go out and say Lando in third. I think the upgrades we've Ooh. got, any sort of error from Red Bull, I think opens the door for an Aston Martin, a McLaren, or a Mercedes at the moment. And with those upgrades, again, like I say, if we can bring them in for Piastri as well. We're looking at a very strong points finish and hopefully we'll uh, be able to compete a bit better for the best of the rest, which at the moment is second place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to go Max win, um, Leclerc second and Alonso third. So No uh, Brit on the podium. Sam, no Brit on the podium, mate. No, I just just because it's in Britain don't mean it has to happen as much no, as I wanted not. to. There's, there's plenty of representation in there, but yeah, just... I, I, You've got to say, haven't you, that at some point, Red Bull are not going to win a race. But at the minute, you've got absolutely no reason to not back against them on a week-to-week basis. So unless they get they crash out or they have car issues, I don't know who or what's going to stop them personally. So it's hard to, to Not even making mistakes else. on the track, are they, at the moment? Max, I mean, Perez is a little bit slower than Maximum, but he was ill last week, weren't he? So that probably explains why he was off the pace a little bit. But Max just isn't making mistakes on the track. And when you've got the fastest car, you've got to rely on the driver error to be able to compete with him. And he's just not making them errors at the moment. Yeah, very true, very true. Sam, will you be watching it? It'll be on in the house. Well, I know we're getting on to weekend shortly, but we, you have a little peek round the door again, or do you think you'll find yourself um, watching again? I might have, uh, I might have a little peek towards the end to uh, see who wins. And I'm going to throw my neck out, and I'm going to say Hamilton wins. I never, ever predict any of these F1 wins. F1 wins, but uh, I'm just while you were both talking, then I could just I could just see a, a VT in the end of it. See headlines. No, no, it was more of a could just see a VT of like Top Gear in 20 years' time, just a little segment how they used to do where in the midst of a Red Bull dominance, Lewis Hamilton back on home soil finally breaks the uh, the Red Bull dominance. I could just see that playing in the end. I thought that's prime for it. That is. So yeah, I'm, I'm going Lewis Hamilton there. There we go. Sam's found his next gig as a voiceover artist then for, for stuff like that. Um, you've actually reminded me, this is a question that I was going to ask at a later date when both you and Kemp were on it, but I can I can ask Kemp next week. It's not a problem when we're talking, but you've never been really much of a motor racing person. It's not like, you know, myself who sort of fell in and in and out of love with it, depending on, you know, if it's actually entertaining to watch or if it's dominant by one driver and that kind of stuff. Is it just, let's use not just motor racing, but just specifically Formula One, is it just a case of that thing is never for you or do you think that there are things that they can put in place that could entice you into be a fan? I, I don't think it's just for me. Motorsport in general is just not really my bag. You can, you, I mean, you can look at any kind of, you know, F1, F2. There's, there's, there would be something for me, wouldn't there, if, if that was the case, I think, you know, even cars and things like that. There's, there is different bags for different different people, so... I, I just think it's motorsport in general. Obviously, I don't like your, your biking and even your, um, your your track cars and your, your track days and things like that. So yeah, it's it's just a it's a it's a car. It's a motorsport thing for me in general that I, I just have not much interest in. That's fair. That's fair. I know Aggie. You probably remembered Kemp's mentioned a few times like he'd probably be interested if it was a bit more even. So that's why I wanted to ask at some point just to get the thoughts on if there was something that could be put in place or changed. Would that would that make him a fan? But. I, I mean, me personally, I'm I'm finding it really hard to watch at, at the moment. I am a Red Bull fan. I am a Max fan, but ultimately, you want to watch a race, and I 
I feel like it's anything but that at the minute. It's more of an exhibition of cars driving around a track, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I mean, even, well, I say even, I've never really seen a constant McLaren dominance and until it picked up with Mercedes, it was literally brawn about, what, 10, 12 years ago that had the, the best car and was the most dominant in, what, about 20 years. So, yeah, it's only become a more recent thing that cars have become dominant and there's not been as much competition. It's much more enjoyable to watch when it is competitive, of course it is, but at the minute it's just a case of you watching Max win and everyone else is fighting for second place and when you don't really get any other championship do you get a drivers and a constructors it's not like you know when you're watching football and if you finish second place you can still you know win the champions league or win the fa cup or something or you know that kind of thing it's literally a case of you finish top or you fin you lose mm, shit or bust yeah would you think it would you say it's fair to say that f1's in a bit of a bad spot right now yeah i think it's been in a bad spot for quite a while and they brought this sal- uh, this uh, this price cap in to make sure that you're only spending a certain amount on your cars and within the first year red bull breached it and the penalty wasn't high enough and teams are just going to believe they're constantly able to get away with it if you're going to implement if you're going to put them penalties in place you've got to implement them when teams break them and make it reflective to make sure that other teams don't then see it as an opportunity for them to break it like red bull at the moment they are so far ahead that now i think it was about a week ago lewis hamilton said that he thinks it'd be a bit better if they brought in a time frame where you cannot work on next year's car until a set date, whereas Red Bull are already so far ahead for the past month or so. They've probably been working on next year's car already and they're preparing themselves for next season, which if you're already winning so far already, why not do that? And it kind of leaves other teams at a bit of a disadvantage, which they're already working on this year's car to make it competitive, but they're losing time on next year and, and so on and so forth. And I think... One thing that he did point out, which I do agree with, is some of the sides that are at the bottom, it's kind of like, um, you know, um, tanking in in NFL for the number one pick. If sides know they're not going to really be competitive, like Haas or Williams have been over the last couple of years, they might just focus all their effort into next year's car, not focus on this year's. And it could really affect the, you know, the sport and what people are enjoying watching, because it's always nice to watch cars overtake and challenges and and that kind of stuff. And at the moment, that's all we're watching for second place. Mm. Well, what um, what if you was the the governing board now, Ben? And Red Bull obviously have have infringed the the, the price cap. What would your sanctions be? I, I'd make them work on the car again. I'd, I'd take literally set them back to to square one and say, look, you you've breached it. You've got to work on the car from scratch and make sure it's within the the finances that you're allowed to spend. And and to, instead of giving them like a points penalty or taking away the championship say look this is what you've got to do you're working back at square one you've only got this set funds you know maybe give them a bit of a financial penalty to say look slap on the wrist that kind of thing but if they've got to work from scratch on the car again that's a big disadvantage within itself Mm. I don't know if you agree on that skin I know you're a red yeah it's tough to say because Sam was talking about sort of you know fans and things like that and and in terms of off-field and business side of it they're probably as strong as they've ever been with the recent deals in america they've just brought in a a race in in las vegas and miami las vegas will debut this year i think miami's in its third year i think um this year so they've grown massively in america especially with the introduction of the drive to survive documentary in uh, on netflix which if you look at their business numbers, they're just through the roof um, as well. Saudi Arabia, as we know, they're looking at investing in a lot of sports. They've now got a race on the F1 calendar. Qatar is, has got a race debut in this year as well. So in terms of the money and the revenue they're bringing in, it, it is at an all-time high. My concern is that 
the reason why they struggled to break into the American market for so long was because drivers were, you know, singular drivers were dominant and there wasn't much competitiveness to it. It did get to a point where it was dramatic. It, it was competitive. Even if it was just between Lewis and Max, at least there was some battle at the front. And with the introduction of that documentary, that's why they saw the popularity rise and that brought in the money and the extra races and media attention and everything else that's gone with it. So I do worry what the next sort of three to five years look like if they don't put a real focus on if they're putting things in place to even up the cars in the field, they're actually putting consequences in place if teams don't abide by that because it will cost them down the line. When when sort of contracts run up with races, they might go, oh, the SWAT's boring again, so we're not bothered anymore. So they do need to keep on top of it. What's the point in putting rules in place if when people break them, there's no punishment? It, spoken like Mr. a compliance. compliance <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly but lads that is episode 56 in the box this time next week there'll be uh, darts to talk about like I say we'll review Silverstone and hopefully many more transfers made official and rumoured for us to go through as well um, but let's talk weekends um, Sam I'll come to you first mate what you got planned for the upcoming weekend I think I can just copy and paste this bit and just put it over like the next year. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, we've uh, obviously recently uh, just uh, rebooked to go to go away again. So that was why you didn't make it last week. Full yes, circle. Yes, Full circle. Break it down. Talk us knew, through it. Knew there was a reason. Uh, yeah, we've uh, we've booked back to go to Disney uh, in Florida. So yeah, we that's what we'll be doing. Um, it's not until next November, but between that and saving for more at the same time it's obviously going to absolutely skin to us so I'll be having quite a few weekends at the minute where I'll be just uh, staying in batting down the ashes and uh, fuck it I might have to get into F1 at this rate because I still need to find, find something to do yeah, well, uh, buy the game actually don't buy the game mate it's absolutely shocking I, I absolutely hate it but um, uh, yeah that, that's fair mate don't blame you being sensible uh, but hopefully when you do go next November when we're on episode like 147 or something you're, uh, I know the time uh, difference will be there, but you're taking time out in your afternoon to uh, make sure you're on the on the recording. So uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll talk yeah. about that when the time comes. Yeah, but priorities, yeah. Um, Aggie, you mentioned at the start again, full circle, four day weekend coming up. What you got going on? Um, on Saturday, I am attending Stabley's open training session. Going to see um, any of the new signings. Trialist. Some trialists, yeah. Uh, new signings that are going through. They played um, midweek against Chesterfield's youth team, so I'll get to see some of the uh, upcoming talent for Chesterfield as well. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing on Saturday. Sunday, I'm probably just going to sit and watch uh, Silverstone. It's my niece's birthday, and I'm I'm trying to get myself to watch Silverstone instead of go out. So, uh, fingers crossed that goes top well. Uncle. But, uh, top <laughs> uncle, yeah. Don't want me there anyway. Yeah, that's right. It's birthday, isn't it? It's a happy occasion. Don't want you fucking negative. No, exactly. Out. Leave me alone. Let me watch Silverstone. Yeah, yeah you do right. That's fair. Well, you mentioned you had a four-day weekend, mate. So what's happened there? Uh, yeah, sorry. Monday and Tuesday. I'm just, I've booked a couple of days off just to be able to chill, <laughs> do nothing. Yeah, just thought, um, get a bit of a break. Uh, kids are at school. Eleanor will be at work. So I've just got a couple of days just chill and do nothing. Chill in your pants, a... play some games. I thought you had a bit of a whiskey on good tonight then if, you, uh, if you're off tomorrow. I'm not. Are oh, you not off tomorrow? Nope, I'm off Saturday, Sunday, uh, Monday, oh, Tuesday. Oh, Monday, Tuesday is it. Get you. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> That's it. Dawson, mate. Dawson, talk me through what your weekend, mate. What are you doing? Not a lot, mate. I'm uh, going to uh, Brewski, one of our new mm. favourites on Saturday. Um, Excellent. T- 
Tommy has been begging me for months and months and months and months that when Transformers came to the cinema, we'd go and watch it. Um, and it dropped the same day as Spider-Man. So we watched that and then like, either I've not had him or we've been busy, so we're not watching it yet. And I think this is probably the last weekend to realistically go and watch it. So Bruce at one o'clock Saturday and then I think it's 10 past three at uh, Entertainment to go and watch that. I'm not too fussed, but he absolutely loves it. So uh, I'm uh, absolutely hammering the life out of Fortnite at the minute and daily and weekly quest trying to build up because the uh, top tier of the battle pass is Optimus Prime skin. So uh, Who is it? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm smashing out of the minute trying to trying to unlock it for him, but I'm sure it'll be okay. But yeah, Sunday nothing, mate. Might watch F1 if I fancy a nap, but uh, other than that, I'll be uh, a pretty chilled one. Not bad, not bad. Happy days. Episode fifty-seven next week. We'll open with Kent's review of his uh, holidays landed back safe today. But until then, lads, have a good week, and uh, we'll be back soon. Never boys. Bye.